Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it is a real privilege to be back here. We just loved our time at Christ the King and think of all of you so fondly and it's always wonderful to be able to visit. Uh, It's great to be able to visit now. It's sort of a slower time for a lot of people in July. Um, We're pretty busy at the moment, but this summer has been very relaxing overall. But it's a wonderful time to think about our topic this morning, which is work. We saw in the, um, the passage that was read out of Genesis um, how Adam is placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. And what I want to talk about is work, and I think it's a, a wonderful time to do that, partially because uh, it's a bit of a slower season for some, and you can take a moment to step back and reflect as you're heading into the fall, which is often uh, too crazy to have much time to reflect. So what, we wanna, what I want to ask is, uh, what are you doing when you're doing what you're doing? What is your vision? And there's a famous story that some of you will have heard about a man who uh, visits a work site and he sees three men that are working and he walks, they're, they're all working construction. He walks up to the first man and he says, what are you doing? And the guy says, I'm, I'm laying bricks. Then he walks up to the second guy and he says, what are you doing? The guy says, I'm building a wall. Then he walks to the third guy and says, what are you doing? And that guy smiles and looks up and says, I'm building a cathedral. So how are you building a cathedral? How are you doing something other than just laying bricks, even with uh, the tasks that you take on every day? Not just work that you're paid for, but whatever work you're doing when you are engaged, uh, when you're working, when you're using your time productively. Now, Adam and Eve are a great place to look to explain our work. Uh, People often ask, what are we here for? What's our purpose? Well, look what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So you have a wonderful purpose clause there explaining why God puts Adam in the garden. Eve is very clearly part of this too. She's not in the story until a few verses later, but she is brought in, introduced as a helper, meaning that she shares the same duties that are incumbent upon Adam. So this is very much men and women implicated in these same duties. Now, I'm really just going to preach on that verse. That's what I'm focusing on sort of in the old Puritan style where you just take one verse and go on it for 90 minutes. I'll take 20, um, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, But the two things, there are two parts of this duty that Adam and Eve are given by God to to work and to keep. So work, that word there, uh, the idea is cultivate. So to cultivate, to take something that is valuable and beautiful, the natural world, and build something out of it. So basically, Adam is being given the task of building human civilization, building culture. The second word, keep, means to protect or to guard. And the idea there, especially in the context, is to guard from evil, to protect God's creation against evil. So we have these twin responsibilities, and these responsibilities come out of the background of Genesis 1, which I believe you heard about last week. Uh, In Genesis 1.28, Adam... uh, humans in general, but specifically Adam and Eve, are given dominion. They're told to increase and fill the earth and to have dominion over the world, meaning that humans, since we all share these same duties given to Adam and Eve, are deputies. We're people that have received some of God's authority that we're meant to exercise on his behalf. What exactly are we meant to do? Well, we're meant to protect, 
and we are meant to cultivate. Those are our twin duties. So what, we want, what I want to do this morning is to look at two things. First, I want to think about what it looks like for us to cultivate and protect in our own lives with our own vocations. And then I want to ask, what, uh, what happens if we're not very good at it? What happens if we are derelict in our duty? What do we, what do, we do with that? So first, let's talk about uh, what it looks like to cultivate and protect. Well, as we're reading Genesis and hearing about the beginning of the story, it's helpful to think about Revelation. So Revelation ends in Revelation 22 with a city. It's very easy to think that that city is, uh, happens because things fell apart and we would have had a, a garden and just been out in nature, but the city is sort of a, um, something that happens as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, and we can see that that's very clearly not the case because Adam and Eve are tasked with cultivating. What that means is that all along the city was the goal. Now, why would, why would the city be the goal? Why would this be the final thing that God does with his creation is create humans and then task them with building a city, with cultivating, with creating culture? People have wondered for a long time about why God created, and what theologians have said is, well, look, God is, is perfect. God is happy. God is fully fulfilled. So it can't possibly be that God is looking to get anything from his creation. He's not looking to receive any good. So he, he must be looking to communicate good. And what is the greatest thing that God could communicate? What is the greatest thing that he could share with creatures? That would be participation, sharing in the life of God, the, the interpersonal communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so a human city, human civilization, human families working together, living together, is an external display of that beautiful internal excellency and love that's captured in the Trinity. So as we are building culture, we're doing something beyond the mundane. We're doing something divine. So what that means is that whatever it is you're doing when you're using your time productively has some connection to this cosmic duty that we have to build culture, unless you're committing fraud, in which case it's probably not very closely connected. But any honest work that you're doing, so say you're, uh, say you're an engineer and you are, or an architect and you're building buildings, it's very easy to draw that connection because you're building the actual structures for the civilization to allow people to interact and thrive. What if you're an attorney? What if you, were, if you work in the law? Well, then you're building the legal frameworks and protecting and enforcing the legal frameworks that allow freedom, that allow uh, safety. If you are working in art, and we have a, a wonderful presentation on art coming up, it's almost, it's, it, the connection draws itself. You're, you're producing culture in its purest form. With education, some people say that uh, this is, you know, teach because you can't do, right? But if you think about it, if what we're doing is building a civilization, what's that civilization built out of? It's built out of people. In uh, 1 Peter, God talks about us as living bricks in the city that he's building. So if you're teaching, what you're doing is building people. It's the same if you're raising children. You're building people. You're, you're building the, the, the inhabitants of this city that are going to be honoring God. 
whether you're in science or philosophy, some people in finance, it may seem like, oh, well, I'm in finance. What connection could that have to this, this great project that God is doing? In some ways, that's the purest form of cultivation. You're taking something uh, abstract in, in, in the way money's handled now and shepherding it, turning it into to, to more, build, building upon that to create uh, the means for people to pursue the very things that are going to be glorifying to God as they build human culture and civilization. So how are you building the city? What is your vocation? And as you think about your vocation, it's important to recognize that we are called in three ways, at least. The Bible makes clear that certainly we're called to particular work, whether that's in the home or in the marketplace or in government or wherever. But before that, we're first of all called to relationship with God the first and most important vocation that we all have. Then we're called to relationships. That's the second level with our spouses, friends, children, parents, neighbors, siblings. And those are more important than the work that we're undertaking. So if we mess up at those higher levels, the lower level, it may seem like it's going fine, but there's going to be problems. At its most extreme, that lowest level of vocation can seem meaningless, regardless of how successful we are. I saw a story a few years ago about Michael Phelps, the one of probably one of the most successful people ever. Dozen, I mean, twenty plus gold medals or something like that, and uh, as Olympic swimmer, he retired in uh, 2012, walked away from all of it. 2014, he decides he wants to make a comeback. And just a few months after his comeback, he's getting arrested for DUIs and doing drugs and apparently was considering taking his own life. And then at that moment, Ray Lewis, who's a professional foot, was a professional football player, I believe he played for the Baltimore Ravens, reaches out to Michael Phelps and gives him a copy of Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. And Michael Phelps says that that book saved his life. He said, it turned me into believing that there is a power greater than myself and there is a purpose for me on this planet. Now, if you or I have our lives saved by the purpose-driven life, it's like, okay, that makes sense. If Michael Phelps has his life saved by the purpose-driven life, you couldn't see any purpose or worth in the amount of... It, it, it's almost unbelievable. Imagine whatever it is that you're pursuing, having the level of success that Michael Phelps had in his career. It's almost hard to picture what that would look like in many fields, and yet that wasn't enough to even make it worth continuing to live, let alone to make him content and feeling full and fulfilled. If we disconnect that relationship to God, the lower levels of relationship become meaningless. And it's the same with our relationships with our families. If we lose the relationship with our family in pursuit of our career, the career is going to become empty. If that's what it looks like to cultivate, now let's talk about what it looks like to protect, to guard against evil. We all know what's coming in the next chapter of Genesis. In Genesis 3, we have the serpent coming to tempt Adam and Eve, and we get a little foreshadowing of that in our, in our uh, verses today where we hear about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think it's easy to read about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and go, well, what's that about? Why aren't they supposed to know good and evil? Aren't they? It seems kind of odd. 
Trees in the Bible are very clearly places of judgment, places of exercising judgment between right and wrong. So the judges in the Old Testament, Deborah, for example, sits under the tree to, to, uh, to bring judgment as they bring cases before her. In David's son, Absalom, is riding along on a horse. This is when he's leading a rebellion against his father, David, the king of Israel. He's riding along on a horse, and he, his head is caught in a tree branch. And so David's army knows that he's under God's judgment and that it's okay to attack him. Jesus is killed on a tree. The New Testament describes his death as being on a tree. Why? Because the tree is representative of judgment. And so Jesus is cursed by God, not cursed because of anything he's done, but cursed on our behalf. He takes our curse. So if trees are places of judgment, what's meant to happen when the serpent comes before the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is that Adam and Eve are meant to exercise their role as deputies of God and judge the serpent. By eating of the tree, they're claiming the ability to define good and evil for themselves. By standing in judgment under the tree, they would be taking on their proper role as executors of God's law So, if we are meant to take on this same role as executors of God's law and, and guard against evil, what does that look like in our vocations? Because every vocation, every line of work, everything that you can be doing productively has its own distinctive temptations, whatever field you're in. I've been working in academics for a few years, and I can tell you what some of the temptations in academics are. One is isolation. It's very easy to get, or self, being self-centered, it's very easy to focus on your own work and not be concerned with other people. Another thing is, alongside that, is being hypercritical. The thing you do is sit around and read people's papers all day and tear them apart. So it's easy to be self-centered, focusing on yourself, and hypercritical of others. Think about your own vocation. Think about the people the other people working in your vocation, because it's easier to see the problems than other people. So I, it's very easy for me to say, oh, that person's so self-centered, and I can see how hypercritical that person is being. But with yourself, it's harder to recognize it. So see the things that other people are struggling with in your professions. Recognize that those are temptations for you too. And exercise your duty as a deputy of God to guard against evil. Pride, dishonesty, cruelty, personal purity. What are the things that you need to be thinking about and guarding against? Because you're not going to cultivate well if you don't protect well. So prepare yourself now. If you do have a moment of respite from the busyness, prepare yourself now for when the busyness comes. If you're in a crazy busy season, then, hey, you're sitting in church. You got a couple minutes right now. So still reflect. Think what you can do to protect, think about how your work involves building this city, this beautiful expression of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit that humans get to participate in, in our relationships with each other and with God. Now, all that leads us to a problem. What are we supposed to do about the fact that we are terrible deputies? We do not cultivate and protect with anything approaching perfection. In fact, Jesus told a story about humans as, as deputies 
Uh, and this pa- is a parable. Some of Jesus' parables, his disciples come up to him afterward and they ask for the interpretation because it's kind of confusing. This wasn't one of those. This one's pretty straightforward. It's about a vineyard. The vineyard clearly is the garden. And let me read it to you from Matthew 21. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. We have each been given these responsibilities whether we like it or not. The problem is that we don't fulfill these responsibilities particularly well. And this is the human predicament. We need God to thrive. We foolishly rejected God, so we're not thriving. So we need to get God's help. Again, we need to get back into relationship with God. But the problem is what we reserve from God is punishment. Now, one major misconception that you see floating around our culture is that God owes us forgiveness, that of course, you know, you'd forgive your children, so God should forgive us. But we shouldn't think of ourselves as children of God apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you know, Jesus calls God Abba, Father. It's like Dada, like the first words of a child, this incredibly close relationship. We don't get to do that apart from Christ. We're deputies. We're people with responsibility. We have authority, and we're going to be accountable for that authority. We're responsible adults that are given a task, need to be held to account for how we fulfill that task. And what happens when you not only are derelict in your duty, but even kill the Son of God when He comes? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. That's what we would expect. That's what anyone would expect. That's what the scribes and Pharisees listening to this parable expect. But when God sends his son and humans do kill him, it's not quite what happens. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. It's about how we're, I'm going to read it in a second, but it's about how we're adopted. We can be adopted through Christ. Natural born children aren't adopted. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Clearly, that's not just men. It's, even though it says sons, it's men and women. It's addressed later in the chapter. Um, but the idea here is that if we want this kind of forgiveness that's going to allow us to make mistakes and nevertheless to have an inheritance kept in heaven for us forever, to be able to have God's help in fulfilling these tasks, and even though we don't do them well, we're going to a loving Father. That's what Christ provides. Have you ever thought about um, what Jesus was actually killed for? 
you know, above, what, is it, what did it say above his head on his cross? The king of the Jews. Jesus was executed for treason. He didn't actually commit treason. He didn't actually lead a rebellion, but that's what he was falsely accused of and executed for. That's the very crime we've committed. That is the human crime, is treason. We take the authority given to us by God and we've turned it over to evil. It's what Adam and Eve did. They turn over to evil and then when, Jesus is, when Satan is tempting Jesus and says that he has authority over all the kingdoms and he can give it to whoever he wants, Jesus doesn't question him. Jesus doesn't deny that because the people who were given authority over the world gave it away. Jesus takes the punishment for our treason and we get his inheritance as heirs. That's what's, that's what's offered to us in Christ. And it's exactly what we need if we're going to live well the duties that we were created to take on. That relationship with, Father, with, the God, with God, with each other, with our vocations, that through which we build this beautiful, wonderful culture expressive of the very excellencies of God and guard this creation against evil and suffering. So what do we do about that? Um, the, uh, the very first verse that we taught our son was Psalm 4.3, the Lord listens when I pray to him. And I wish I could tell you it was part of a wonderful grand plan that we have. It just happened to be the first verse that was in a, this wonderful little prayer book that one of our friends gave us. But it is a fantastic verse to start with, and it's a verse that's relevant right now because if we see this issue that we have, there's a very simple response to it, and that is that the Lord listens when we pray to him. So we can say, Lord, I need you. I know that I have been derelict in the duty entrusted to me. In Christ, forgive me. Be my Savior and my God, and may everything I do be done for you and be done well because it's done in the power of your Spirit. What are you doing when you're doing what you're doing? What's your vision Whatever you're doing, even if you're doing it well, if it's cut off from Christ, you're misunderstanding your work. So don't just lay bricks as you're working. Say, be thou my vision. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Please, Lord, equip us with everything good that we may do your will and work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.